0: As companies look at this from a sustainability standpoint, and they truly study the environmental side of it, they have the opportunity to look at all the benefits, not only to their reputation, but it lights the employees up when they see the company start to really care about this. To your point, those engineering gears start to turn, and then they start breaking it down to the piece parts, and they can see where there are methane leaks. Well, let's put in the monitors and let's solve for that. And then when you get into this whole esg space and you look at the e part of it really hard this is where i think the industry is probably going to be one of the the most reliable from whatever it says it's going to do and what it discloses
1: welcome to smarter markets a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology commodities and finance ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Hello, Reed. So glad
2: you could join us today. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Reed leads the Global Energy Advisory Practice at PwC, PricewaterhouseCooper, and is advising clients on ESG, Net Zero, and the energy transition. Reed, you've spent over 25 years consulting on just about every facet of the energy industry operations. How does the current energy transition to net zero compare to some of the other big transitions that you've advised the industry on over the years?
0: It's one of the most fascinating ones because there's this mix of ambition from all different stakeholders, and there's this huge absence of understanding the physics of the global energy system. I don't know anybody who doesn't want a cleaner environment, and I don't know anybody who doesn't want reliable, affordable energy. Those two have to compete for capital and also for the physical properties of energy. And this is where it gets really fascinating because the energy system requires all sources of energy. And if you look at the energy demand and the profile, we're short on energy. And then when you start taking certain supplies offline and then signaling you don't want certain supplies because of the emissions factor, you then create a consequence of you're not gonna have a reliable energy system. But if you wanna have reliable energy and zero emissions, there's a way to do it, but it's not gonna be a single energy source. It's gonna be all the above and knowing how important energy is and what these industries do from a science and engineering standpoint, it really is set up for this transition to require new technologies that are probably going to be shepherded along by the traditional players. And I think that's where the conventional thinking right now is, well, the traditional players don't have a place. And the reality is they do, but it's gonna be a, a really fascinating next 10 to 20 years. And thinking
2: about the, the traditional players, who, as you said, are going to be playing such a big role in this transition as they have the the engineering expertise, understand how the industry works, understand the science. How widespread do you see the shareholder and ESG pressure on those traditional energy companies right now? Uh, Because what I'm curious about is, are these energy companies, in your experience, ready to get fully on board? Or are they seeing this as kind of a, a storm to be weathered a passing fad, or are they seeing it as a new normal that requires a fundamental change in the way they're operating their business?
0: It is a top three priority for boards, management teams, and the frontline worker. The really interesting part about this whole time that we're in five years ago, I would have said most of them were trying to deflect the topic because it felt like a threat, and now when you look at it, it's a licensed operate. But what's cool about this is as companies have started to lean into it and you look at E, S, and G, it's really broad and it's deep. And on the S and the G side, the energy industry actually has a lot of high ratings. They're strong in governance. You look at what they do for the communities. You look at what they do globally for workforces and development. They score really high. On the E side, that's where they have work to do. The most promising part about this is they're engaging. When they let the narrative and the conversation be had by others, not saying that anybody was wrong, everyone is right, but they're not completely right in the sense of everyone wants a sustainable future. Okay. That means we want clean energy. does not mean that we're going to have no hydrocarbons, no nuclear, no coal. We're going to have an energy system that's going to require all of that, but we're going to have to do it with zero emissions. And as there's, there's a point in time five years ago when I really got it. I was doing a keynote up in Calgary and the person who's doing the keynote the day before, was a professor from the West Coast. And he specialized in energy systems, which I honestly did not know as a field of study. And it's a combination of physics and economics. And he was very involved in the UN climate studies. He was known as a thought leader around the transition. I was pretty convinced the conference organizers had set us up to cross swords. So we had coffee beforehand. And before I could say anything, his first thing was Tell the energy industry it has to stand guard for the next three hundred years. My kind of pal went, okay. Tell me more, and that's when I really got the the education because his focus on the energy system was no intent to say I'm going to find a new source of energy. It was what's the available energy sources we have and they're on the horizon, and then what's the demand profile. And what he said was the amount of energy we need today is only going to grow. And then when you look at the energy sources, there are four characteristics that he looks at. How energy dense is it? The energy return on energy. It takes energy make energy. So there's a coefficient called EROE. You know, hydro is 60 plus, geothermal, it's 50, nuclear is around 35 to 40, hydrocarbons around 25, coal around 20, solar and wind, three to four. And he said the max solar and wind are going to get to is maybe five or six, and it takes a big footprint. So that's the first characteristic the energy density second can you store it so you can use it when you want third can you move it to use it where you want and four does it have an emission an environmental impact and his point was the energy system is going to need hydrocarbons because and this is what a lot of people don't know it is a organic solar power storage device the hydrocarbon source material is algae and mother nature created this energy transportation device called a hydrocarbon that you can store it, use it, and it's energy rich. The emission side of it is where we have to acknowledge there's a consequence if we don't start managing it and capturing it. And his punchline to the end of it was to do carbon capture requires three things. It's hard science and engineering. Two, if you're going to sequester it, you need to understand the subsurface, the geology. And then three, these are large capital projects and assets that have to be operated for decades. And he said, that's what the energy industry has done for years. So the energy industry actually has physics on its side from an energy system. 85% of our energy today comes from hydrocarbons. The emission side of it, that's where I see these leaders now stepping up going, not only is this a way for us to make a good contribution to our own emissions footprint, it's a way to be a good stakeholder in the overall discussion around sustainability. And that's shifted the energy companies from being somebody who's playing defense and trying to almost deflect the topic to now engaging it and saying, oh, this is a new value chain. It's good for society and it's what we're good at. And that's why I think from a transition standpoint and the role of the energy companies, there's a little bit of you know rhetoric out there about end of days and sunset or comparing it to the cigarette industry. And that's probably unnecessary rhetoric. The proper discussion, and that's where I see the movement of the different players is they're starting to talk to each other as opposed to at each other. And that's where I think, you know, this whole energy system is going to be something that the transition itself is going to be fun. And it's going to be also important for the energy players to lean into it.
2: It's so great to hear about this kind of massive change in mindset that you've been experiencing. And probably as somebody who's been around the energy industry and worked in the energy industry for 25 years, you probably grasp how massive that change is in mindset relative to, I'm sure, what you experienced earlier in your career. And I think that's really critical. It's people being able to acknowledge both sides of the debate, that climate change is a big threat and we need to do something about it, but having affordable, accessible, reliable energy is a tremendous good for all of us. And, you know, people want to stay warm, people need to be able to move, we need our economy to grow. And if we can acknowledge those two things, we can like bring people together. And one of the things I've loved about the industry is when you're around engineers, engineers love to solve problems. And so, you know, if you can get people engaged and tone down the rhetoric, and it sounds like that mindset has changed. How do you see a lot of this commitment and change in mindset flowing through, you know, one of the wraps on ESG pledges and net zero pledges from people who are more skeptical about the change in mindset is that it's public relations. It's kind of, it's run out of the marketing department of the company, as opposed to, you know, operations or risk management. And that when it ends up, you know, filtering through and once, you know, keeping the ESG pledge is in the hands of operations or the risk manager, then, you know, it's real. Is that a fair way to look at it, and do you see that migration happening of you know the pledges going into the hands of you know the people who are in charge of running the companies as opposed to marketing and public relations
0: there's definitely a shift over both the purpose of these ESG commitments and then who's accountable for it five years ago, it probably was more of a corporate reputation and a compliance thing now what I see it is Companies are genuinely looking at this as yes, there's a investor disclosure side to it. And you want to make sure you've got the right metrics and that they're accurate and that your investors and other stakeholders can look at it and have trust in it. The part that's really changed, though, is as companies look at this from a sustainability standpoint and they truly study the environmental side of it, they have the opportunity to look at all the benefits, not only to their reputation, but it lights the employees up when they see the company start to really care about this. To your point, those engineering gears start to turn, and then they start breaking it down to the piece parts and they can see where there are methane leaks. Well, let's put in the monitors and let's solve for that. And then when you get into this whole ESG space and you look at the E part of it really hard, this is where i think the industry is probably going to be one of the the most reliable from whatever it says it's going to do and what it discloses because everyone refers to it as a ton of co2 okay well if you look closely it's actually called co2e which is an equivalent the in, the environmental engineers i know kind of chuckle and go that e should really mean estimate because measuring emissions is really hard Yes, I can measure the weight of water and pour it into a gallon and on a scale, but try to find a way to do direct measurement of emissions. And you'll have people who are professionals go, Yeah, that, that's almost not possible. So what they do is they take estimates and then they use calculations that are based on estimates. The point there is the unit of measure that everyone is just, you know, taken with blind faith is accurate, called ton of CO2, is so imperfect right now. And a unit of measure is a construct that we make up time, money. And the fascinating part about this is, can you imagine having a financial system where the unit of measure is currency and it's a US dollar and it's a dollar and you know it's 100 pennies. In the equivalent CO2 world, it would be like saying, okay, I've got a ton of CO2. It's a dollar bound if it's 60 pennies or 140 pennies. Because the GHG protocol, how many people know this? It's based on an ISO standard. The ISO standard is 14,000 and it comes from the environmental management system and it's ISO 14,064 and 67. And it lays out just like accounting language, you use best available emissions measurement data. Okay. Well, if you don't have direct measurement, it lays out four calculation methods. One's called EEIO. It's a big swag. So it's your least reliable. Second approach is use global data sets like from the EPA and others. Okay. It's. Reliable, but it's an average, so it's probably not precise. Third is supplier-provided verified data. Fourth is direct measurement. What you're going to see happen to a lot of these companies who are making net-zero pledges is there's going to be a, a moment of reckoning where they're going to realize the emissions database is either empty or it's full of sketchy data. And the energy industry has, as its DNA, it doesn't not like it does not like to be reckless with measurements and disclosures and what it says it's gonna provide. If it says it's gonna provide a gallon of gasoline, you're getting a gallon of gasoline. So they're gonna be the ones I think that really take a hard look at the CO2 measurement and create some of the things like a carbon ledger, put in place the procedures to have a carbon controller, to have the respect of the science that underpins these measurements and also bring to the front a lot of the technologies for accurate measurement calculation and what is the, the so what to a lot of these commitments people are making is the disclosure. And this is the unpleasant part for a lot of executives is they're like, okay, we're going to calculate our emissions, okay, for scope one, two, or three. And you sort of get a pause like, well, what's the difference? Okay, and explain, you know, your direct emissions, the emissions from your energy sources, that's scope one and two, and then scope three, the full value chain. And they kind of go, okay, we'll do scope one and two because it's It's available, okay? If you're going to disclose that, it has to be verified, and people kind of pause and go, why? Because the GHC protocol says, per the ISO standard, if you're going to disclose this, your calculations have to be verified by an ISO accredited verifier. That's synonymous with financial disclosures and companies having an auditor attest that you're following the procedures and the standards of the accounting principles that you've chosen to use there's this big gap of emissions data and companies that made these net zero commitments, they're gonna be compelled to come up with a way to measure, calculate, verify, and then disclose. And that's where the energy industry actually, I think is gonna have a big role to play because they're gonna take a scientific approach to it. And they're gonna marry that up with the ambitions. And then you get into the carbon offset space. As companies are gonna buy offsets, they're probably gonna wanna buy a true offset that you can measure and verify, well, this industry delivers what it says it's going to. So what I've been telling clients is if you move into carbon capture, you're probably gonna have the ability to get yourself to net zero, build a bank of offsets and be able to monetize those. And companies are gonna be compelled to buy offsets that are truly a ton of CO2 taken out of the environment. And your reputation as a deliverer of energy, people trust you. So this whole space is so dynamic, but fascinating. When you start to get grounded in, oh, it's the ISO standard. The measurement is imperfect. The database is empty, but let's go.
2: And that's fascinating because as you said, you've got a group of people who have spent their life producing two very precise specifications. If you get the vapor pressure wrong in the gasoline, the car doesn't start. If you mess up the jet fuel specification, you have a tragedy on your hands. So it's it's fascinating that it's it's that mentality being transferred to what still is a rather loose set of rules. And, you know, will that actually be a catalyst for the the protocols becoming more precise? It also sounds like you're saying that there are, you know, real legal, potential legal consequences in that You know, I think often people will look and say, well, they, you know, make a pledge one day, but if they break it, what's to stop them? It sounds like there is something to stop them the way it kind of goes through their corporate procedures. Is that right?
0: Yep. And there was a point two years ago when I started to see this moving from a intellectual discussion to its business, and it's going to make a big difference to how a company operates. And it was when companies made those net zero commitments and then I started to get educated by my colleagues who some of them helped write the GHG protocol. They're environmental scientists. They were the ones that started telling me that it's simple math about how do you get to net zero? You decarbonize what you can you buy offsets for the rest. And within that, I realized there's a lot of companies that made these commitments. There are regulators who are going to set standards for disclosures. And just like in financial terms, it's not cool when you have a restatement. And it's not something that you take lightly. And now that this is in that zone where there are stakeholders who are going to have disclosures to look at and be able to evaluate, it's going to compel management and boards to make sure that what they disclose is accurate. And then the kicker was when I saw board committees being formed, executive incentive plans tied to ESG targets, and the fact that this had moved from discretionary to license to operate, that's when I told my colleagues it's game time because there's not a way that I can see a company walking back its commitments. Now it's gonna be a situation of things are going to evolve at a fast pace and I can't find a person that doesn't want a clean environment. So it's kind of like, okay, we're gonna have some fascinating times. We're all in this together. That's where I see the energy industry starting to to clue into the fact of there's a seat at the table for you there's a set of expectations coming at you and there's something you do for the world every day that you should be proud of and that's where I think you're starting to find the the industry's starting to find its voice around that and it's 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 one of those things that when you kind of just go deep on this one and this may get a little bit too geeky but before we had reliable energy back in 1800 global population was a billion people then we figured out coal the next 100 years we added billion people, so we're two billion people. Then we figured out the electron and the hydrocarbon and now we're eight billion people. It does not take a rocket scientist to see the correlation. The industry did something that was exceptionally hard and never been done before, provide reliable, affordable energy and the world prospered. They over-delivered on that to where people now think it's easy to make these switches. And the industry kind of was tone deaf to self-promoting the goodness they have done. And that's when you go back to the ESG and sustainability and you look at the real purpose of that is to make life better. But the industry has a lot of proof points that it can be proud of about making life better. And that's where you see the sort of the the somberness of the conversation of this is serious stuff. And if you don't have reliable energy, really bad things happen. And when you do, good things happen. And that's where the industry is both. It's standing on firm ground, but it's now finding its voice.
2: And I love the phrase you use, the the license to operate. I think that's like such a great way to capture that shift to mindset and what's so important for going forward. And it reminded me a little bit of, um, you know, you had said that with the regulators enforcing the disclosures, so you might, no one's going to compel you to make the commitment or not make the commitment other than your shareholders, your employees, your investors, your stakeholders. The regulators right now aren't going to do that, but they will compel you to be clear in your disclosures. And so there's really no room to try to wiggle out of it, in a way. And that's a fascinating angle. I wanted to switch. As you start to think about, as the companies try to implement, you've spoken some about some of the looseness in the standards as an operational challenge. What are some of the other operational challenges you're seeing as the commitments made in the C-suite are you know pushed down to get implemented through operations?
0: One of the complexities of this is sustainability seems to have gotten narrowed into the E of ESG and within the E into CO2. One of the needed debates is from a sustainability standpoint, what are the top three to five priorities? I would make an argument there are things more important than CO2 in terms of where we need action, prosperity diversity and inclusion, water, recycling, everyone is focused on CO2 because I think it's digestible. Everyone can understand it, but it's not necessarily the most important one. So the complexity from the standpoint is the industry is very committed to recycling all the water they use, to having minimal environmental impacts, to raising their own standards on being a great place to work and build a career, regardless of what your background is. And the prosperity side. And so the complexity of this is, the emissions is what everyone's going to be focused on. It's a no regret thing, everyone can give you credit for it. But there are engineers that are kind of looking at like, yeah, but there's things that are more important. And that's where you kind of see the need to kind of stay in your lane, and focus on what the stakeholders are asking of you. And then the complexity of it is the, the engineering of it, you know, measurement, reporting, verification, and those kinds of things, the industry has taken a hard look at the different digital technologies and artificial intelligence and whatnot. And they're really adopting it fast and what plays to their advantage. And I swear, every time I talk to people who are not schooled in this industry, who think of it as it's a bunch of dumb iron and pickup trucks and stuff. And they're just, it's like, do you realize that of the 10 largest supercomputers in the world, eight of them have been designed and are used by the energy industry. The amount of science and technology it takes to find that hydrocarbon five miles underground 10 miles in one direction and hit a zone the size of five gallon bucket and do it every day that is brilliant science and the engineering muscle and the operational challenges right now you can see the industry is actually kind of getting excited because like oh we know how to solve complex problems it's game time and that's where i see the you know convergence of good intentions ambition with the real muscle that it takes to create the innovation.
2: And you had said earlier, you know, as, as you go through with this innovation, it, like you said, it's a pretty simple equation. There's, you know, reduce as much as you can and get offsets for the rest. Do you have any sense of where that breakdown will be? Like how reliant do you think the industry will be on carbon offsets in order to meet their net zero commitments versus how much do you think they can do in-house in a matter of speaking?
0: I think they're going to, Decarbonize their own operations. So their scope one, their scope two, and the use of the electricity will come more from renewable sources. So I think they will have a pathway to decarbonizing their own operations. The scope three, and this is just so fun. I ask people who tell me, you know, but I'm really passionate about this and I, you know, we need to make an improvement. I'm like, okay, on, on which category? And they're like, category, I thought you said it's scopes. Well, it's scope one, two, and three, but in scope three, there are 15 categories. And you see people kind of have that blank look like, "Um, what are you talking about? The real purpose of scope three is the full value chain, the full use of your products, and also the emissions from the materials and services you procure. And that's the part where the industry is looking at it like, we will acknowledge that there are emissions from the use of hydrocarbons. To say it's going to be an oil and gas company that is going to make that come down to zero is almost a a threatening or reckless position to take what they do say in a very sober way this has to be a multi-stakeholder solution and within that what they're trying to do is send a signal of we can get to net zero but you all ain't going to have a lot of energy so we're not going to go down that because that's the sort of a not a really smart way to talk what is a smart way to talk is okay if we want to have net zero and we need carbon offsets the energy industry will, industry will be a big producer of those and how are those going to get you know, transacted, is it going to be through an emissions trading scheme, a private exchange? And that's where the the direction of travel is from an industry and then also their footprint, and then also the scope three, you know, footprint of their products. That's one of the things you can see starting to to come into shape.
2: And for folks who aren't as familiar, as an example, if I'm an oil company, my scope one and two emissions will be the energy that I'm using, pulling oil out of the ground, refining it, getting it to market, putting it through pipelines and the electricity I'm using to help facilitate all those processes. The scope three emissions for the oil company are my customer burning the gasoline in their car and the emissions associated with that or the jet fuel the plane uses or the heating oil. So for an oil company to be responsible and handle scope one, two and three, that would mean being the scope three is being responsible for what you and I emit in our
0: everyday use of energy. And there's some some technologies that are in development around the tailpipe and capturing 100% of that emissions. You know, Saudi Aramco has a research facility outside of Detroit and they're partnering with the automotive industry because again, it's one of those engineering problems. If the challenge you're trying to solve for is the emissions coming out of that tailpipe, well then let's capture it. and. You can imagine when you go for your next oil change, that canister on your tow pipe that makes it net zero gets replaced so you have zero emissions. Now, that's a little bit further on the horizon, but it's at the prototype stage. It's been proven. Now they're working on just reducing the size and the cost of it. So when you know that the the transportation system is massive and it's going to continue growing, the fuel source is going to be a mix of EVs, renewable fuels, and hydrocarbons. And that tailpipe is the problem. I see the industry actually starting to put some serious money into solving it, but they're not out there self-promoting it because again, this industry is very humble. They don't like to get over their skis. They're only gonna put something out there when they know they can deliver the goods. And that's when I think of their ability to your point of how can they get to net zero, that scope three is a really hard one and they're working it. And that's where I go, okay, this is game time.
2: And that tailpipe innovation be really fascinating in part because it's not unprecedented it sounds very familiar in terms of the catalytic converters that we're all used to having in our cars that were developed to deal with particulate emissions in the past. And part of why we don't talk a lot about acid rain right now when we talk about carbon. So fascinating that that's already something that's uh, being worked on in the lab and could be something that's coming to the a car near you, you know, however many years down the road. I'm curious, as the energy companies. Will need to avail themselves of, you know, carbon markets. What do you see them needing from the voluntary markets, and what are they not getting? Obviously, these are very new markets; they're just beginning to form. But from a from a commercial standpoint, what do you see as? Oh, if the markets could evolve in this direction, that would be very helpful to the the commercial energy producers that need to use them.
0: The lack of a global framework is one of the challenges. And within that, I mean, there's, within emissions trading schemes, there's a carbon register, an offset registry that you as a participant have to essentially file and have your methodology, your technology evaluated to say what you're offering to the market as a ton of CO2. We have certified and validated that in fact, the market participants can trust that you're buying it. So when you have different geographies that have an emissions trading scheme, you have the framework that has the carbon registry as the the gating mechanism for Ambay to go in and sell that. So when you think of, okay, globally, we, you're going to have private exchanges, private transactions, the lack of a global framework and a lack of a global standard essentially puts the burden on the buyer because they're going to be adding this to their carbon balance sheet. They're going to be disclosing it and they will carry the burden of being able to audit, validate, verify that this is truly a ton of CO2. And that's where the commerciality of this is probably gonna to seek either participants that have a reputation and a set of procedures and controls such that their counterparty can just go, okay, I get it. I trust them getting a ton of CO2 from you. Or there's gonna be global frameworks that put in place some standards such that we can have the fungibility between participants of these assets. And that's where I think things may be a little bit more isolated in terms of progress until we have those frameworks and the larger marketplaces set some standards.
2: Right, because it seems very, I think what a lot of companies that have made these commitments fear most is the accusation of greenwashing and not trying to keep the commitments but when there's a lack of standards or if you don't know what standard is acceptable that creates a lot of ambiguity and a, I'm sure a lot of risk for these companies and so you know it's an interesting thing with the way the the markets are evolving and the voluntary nature of many of them is that the ultimate arbiters of whether what you've done is good enough are gonna be the stakeholders, the investors, the banks, the employees who pushed you to make those pledges in the first place. So there's, there's a big scope for getting some sort of consensus on, okay, what's an honest methodology for, you know, that's equal to removing one metric ton of carbon equivalent from the atmosphere. And being able to say, okay, if you hit that target, then you've satisfied your commitment.
0: And as much as the, the greenwashing is a very serious accusation, an equally unpleasant thing that's happened in the last 15 years is companies have bought offsets that turned out to not be truly offsets. And I'm not going to call it fraud or counterfeit, but it wasn't the amount of CO2 that a company thought they were getting when they you know, helped underwrite maybe a nature-based solution. And that's another part of this that's been really unfortunate is, there were some some sketchy players who took advantage of a a need for carbon offsets, but they really didn't have the, the solution and it wasn't durable, but people bought those offsets and then they turned around to find out 10 years later when they went back, it was not what they thought. And that's a really unfortunate situation. And that's where the maturing of this whole space is people are starting to realize you need to have a way to really certify validate, verify that whatever is a proposed emission project truly does take that out of the environment and then the once you buy those offsets can have peace of mind that they're not going to get that surprise
2: yeah, uh, incredible when you think about you know I think often the conversation is is the company going to be honest with the the market but also you brought up the point of you know what if the company doesn't know if it's getting a good offset or not? You know, sometimes it's even hard for the people that are trying to buy the quality offset to potentially get the quality offset. And hopefully as these markets develop and we have more transparency and, you know, more players in the markets and, you know, the, the established gatekeepers like the registries with their methodologies and their, you know, the, the companies they use in order to verify that the methodologies are being implemented and met. That's a, a needed way for the market to develop, as you've said. Earlier, you brought up uh, your your friend who said that they need the the energy companies to stand guard for the next 300 years or so. And when we look at, you know, what's happened in Europe this winter with the price of natural gas, some of that being driven by some of the movements away from traditional energy sources, potentially a little too quickly and without enough thought to the resiliency of the system, you know, to what extent when you're working with CEOs and boards and energy companies, do you see this move, you know, curtailing investment in the energy industry in conventional operations? And is it curtailing those to an extent or in a way that could leave us more prone to an energy crunch in the coming decade or two?
0: Yes, absolutely yes. And it's interesting, the, the value proposition to an investor of the energy industry has changed. 10 years ago, the thesis was peak oil. Don't know if we have enough. So there was value placed on a company being able to grow its asset base. And it was measured on enterprise value. And it was reflected in the equity, the stock price. And its executives were incented to grow the portfolio of reserves. And same on the refining side, grow your production base we then pivoted into this peak demand narrative where the belief was we've got enough oil and it's about you know returns that caught the industry off guard because they were always focused on getting access to capital doing the hard work of exploration development and then getting rewarded with a bigger asset base that was reflected in net asset value and so before we even had the ESG you know, a theme flowing through, there was already a group of investors that said, I'm done with this industry because the volatility of the commodity cycle meant that there were times when there was not positive returns. And that makes an investor pretty um, reluctant to go invest in that again. So, what you had happened before ESG was really even influencing it was the industry had a reputation of destroying capital, not making good return. And that's one of the things that we've always been you know, the the grumpy one in the room with our clients, saying, whether you're a national owned oil company or you are an investor owned oil company, your purpose from an investor standpoint is returns. And if you look at other industries that have gone through that sort of volatility, the smart people design their business based on the low cycle in terms of activity and volume, translate that into our world. That means plan your business around $30 oil, Maintain your cost structure that you can make a dollar at thirty dollar oil, and what you found was most of these oil companies they built their business and their economics off of mid cycle economics sixty dollar oil, and they also had this set of capabilities that were really about finding the next barrel, big exploration teams. Now the industry has had that dose reality that investors aren't rewarding you; they don't believe that growing the asset base is needed, and that's the ESG theme, and they're also looking at it like i have other places that I can invest to get a nice stable return. So the investor pool has shrunk. You don't have the growth investor, the value investor, they can invest in any industry and what you're starting to see is the industry has taken that medicine and they've reset their strategy, their business model, and they're operating with a lot more discipline such that they really can break even at 40. Now, a few of them can break even at 30. But it wasn't too long ago, we had negative oil prices, even if that was a moment in time and it was a futures contract. Still, the demand went away, the oil prices went down and they were staring at the fact that the, the world will reward them if they produce returns, but they're not gonna reward them if they grow the reserves. And you've seen this sea change where free cash flow matters, returns are what matter. And they've got the influence now of ESG, which has taken another investor group away and it's almost the stress test that I tell my clients is your ultimate path to success is if you can self-fund, provide a solid return, a dividend that's in that, you know, dividend aristocrat space and the free cash flow that's left. You invested in things that you know are high probable for returns. You won't need any get money. And when you get there, there's going to be a lot of capital providers that will support you because that study that we do and talking to the institutional investors and management teams and asking what's the outcome you want. The institutional investors that we talk to are the value investors, the ones representing big pension funds and pools of capital. And they're like, look, I get fired if my return goes below inflation. So just keep me above inflation. And if you can give me a steady 5%, okay, I'm interested. You give me 7%, now you're on my favorites list. Well, the industry now has gotten that message and they're starting to pivot to that. And they're here. you're hearing commitments to dividends, variable and special dividends. When they get in that rhythm and they can self-fund, they'll find there is actually a pool of capital providers that will reward them. And that's where I think the the real pivot has happened within this industry. Yeah, and it sounds like with self-funding
2: or being able to manage with self-funding and generate free cash flow for your shareholders, you know, in the past that would have been making sure you were profitable at $30 oil. And now it's probably going to mean being profitable at $30 oil and $50 carbon. So taking both of those into account. So less investment, bigger chance of energy problems down the road, Maybe now I'll ask you for a little free advice as we wrap up. If you were in a room, as you often are with energy industry CEOs, you know, what would the one piece of advice you'd want to offer? What should be on the top of their minds, you know, today as they're thinking about some of these issues over the next few years?
0: Engage. It would be to engage. When I look at my European colleagues and what the European energy companies have done, they have a different relationship with the different stakeholders. And it's much more of a two-way discussion. The US companies, the dialogue they have with regulators, with NGOs and others, is a little bit of talking past each other. And it's a bit of an adversarial conversation. And it's just not good for either side. And I look at the model that the European players have, they have a much more active and recurring dialogue it's because they have realized, kind of look at their own legacy as Europe. You know, the amount of shuttle diplomacy and the amount of things that they've figured out being, you know, how many countries in the European Union, you've got to have a way to resolve things. And it usually starts with talking. Our U.S. companies will benefit from engaging, even if it's with the people that say your industry should be, you know, sunset, go talk to them. And then when you have that conversation, be open to their point of view, because if they truly want to get rid of you, then the consequence to their own lifestyle is something they have to accept, which is not what they want. They just want to see movement. And that's where the industry will find they have a story to tell, but also they'll be more in tune with what those stakeholders
1: want. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABEX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.